Hello folks and thanks for tuning in to the Scottish Games Network podcast. I'm Andrew and this week we have another archive interview from Sebastian Mackay of the Scottish Business Podcast. In this episode, Seb caught up with Maxwell Scott Slade, who is the director and co-founder of Glitchers, a games developer based in Edinburgh. Glitchers recently released Drive-By, which is a delivery car combat game that's on PC and Nintendo Switch. And this conversation comes from a few weeks before that game was released, so there's some really interesting chat about um, how to prepare for a game's release on the business side, um, things like sales forecasting and things like that, and also what it's like launching a game on Nintendo Switch and the eShop as an indie developer. Glitchers are a recent addition to the Edinburgh game scene. They moved up from London uh, last year. So Maxwell talks about some of the differences and advantages of being in Edinburgh as opposed to London. This is a really fun chat full of all sorts of tangents. They, 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 there's chat about subscription models, there's chat about Maxwell's trip to Tokyo, and uh, also for some reason how the, each of them would go about surviving a zombie apocalypse. So um, you're in for a good one, please enjoy, and take it away Seb. Hey Max, how you doing? Hey man, sorry about that. No, it's all good. I've just been hanging out, listening to the week events and playing Pokemon Go, so it was quite cool. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't like a disaster. You sat there twiddling your thumbs. No, 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 not at all. No, it, it was it was kind of nice actually. It's been a really weird day, so it was good to have like a couple of minutes to just decompress. Oh man, I feel like this whole... I don't even know where to begin with that topic actually. Like... The... Just the amount of stuff that seems to be going on at the moment is crazy. Plus the fact that we're all trying to do it from home and it's just adding so much to it. Not in a good way. (laughs) And I'm one of those people that just keeps adding more and more stuff. You know, I'm like, oh, that podcast I did last year, I should bring that back. And and then it's just like you forget how much like admin overhead comes with, you know, just getting to this point, let alone putting it on the actual Internet. So. Yeah, it's the little tiny tasks that you think I can take on more and then they just add up and then you just tearing your hair out, <laughs> right? See, yeah. You've um, torn it all out. Torn it all out. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you had much downtime lately to, to be playing any games? Um, well, I've been... I've been setting up this little space here because we're about to launch um, Drive-By in, in, in March. So actually I've been spending my downtime kind of like building this tiny private little spot in the house where I can come and like do things like this and um, play the game and just basically be a bit of a slob in private. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to call it a man cave because, you know, I feel like it's got a purpose outside of just kind of pure indulgence. Mm. Um, but it is a bit of that. But I have been playing um, Valhalla on the PS5. That's been quite fun Very just nice. to kind of, I don't know, kill those people, which is terrible to say. <laughs> That's going to be the cold open. Yeah, it should be yeah. so enjoyable. Bad, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, I get, you know, I've been getting the same thing from Ghost of Tsushima. 
it's it's just like nice to unwind by stabbing people in the face and i know that Thank sounds you. sycophantic but like... <laughs> i'm glad that you feel the same way there's, there's nothing more satisfying than kind of like jumping off a rooftop and you know putting your katana through the top of someone's skull and you're like wow i'm, I'm a uniquely talented individual yeah these moments where you get to be kind of powerful sort of video games are for right yeah um exactly. they either kind of hopefully trigger some kind of uh connection to you being more interested in your daily life <laughs> you kind of do something a bit crazy that you would never do in reality um, yeah, little little asterisks there i would never do this in reality although um brian yeah. from the games network and i were talking he's been playing rage 2 at the moment and we we're discussing how because um games are just murder simulators tongue very firmly in cheek of course that it was going to be the gamers that took over once the the shit hit the fan and we all should have learned archery because i mean that would that was going to be a crucial survival skill but i haven't taken it up and now it's way too late <laughs> it does feel like um somehow well not even somehow like there's a lot of very clear paths to the shit hitting the fan in just multiple different ways right <laughs> yeah it's i mean the, the the sort of i don't know the, the the i'm not a conspiracy theorist at all and i'm not an anti-vaxxer or any of that stuff but the 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 kind of i the the sort of like zombie a post-apocalyptic kind of fantasist i think that everyone who enjoys sort of any kind of fiction and indulges in that kind of stuff uh often plays out like you know what would you i know i'd be i'm pretty sure i'd be dead within like two days <laughs> oh, <me too>. yeah. <laughs> i'll be gone and i would i'll probably be in this very room just like in the corner having a panic attack that's a, you know the funny thing about that and and i have my zombie survival plan sorted out like if that happens or when that happens, I will buy stilts and I will be fine. But that's quite why, good. Still why would it. you why would you want to survive? Yeah, that one's free. I stole it from someone else. So but like that's the thing for me is like I've you know, I've played all those zombie games, watched all the films, like I'm sure most people have, and I just I can't get my head around why you'd want to live through that. No. You know, and I just and yeah, we've started this conversation now, so we're gonna go into it. Good. Uh <laughs> I always think about like this kind of the end of the world. And I was listening to the Reply All podcast the other day. And, and I think one of the latest episodes, he is talking to someone who kind of, again, I say the word indulge, indulges in his kind of potential ideas. They're very negative. They're not positive in any way um, about like the end of the world and how it's like people kind of bundled it all into 2020. And now it's 2021. And everyone's just like, hmm, it's the same like mm. yes it doesn't things going wrong don't doesn't care about the year obviously not that's a completely man-made structure um why are you getting caught up with this and you know i said to my friend the other day look mate you're i know you keep saying to me you're spinning wheels spinning tires being in london and one of the reasons that we got out um was because we wanted to to have a better quality of life i said you've got to make decisions on the worst case scenario right mm -hmm. and hope for the best because if you kind of go okay what if this stuff happens um at least i'm going to be in a vaguely better position than i was if i just stayed doing what i'm doing now <laughs> but like in answer to your question like do you think that you'd want to survive i'm not sure i think it's a slow decline though at some point mm -hmm. it's just like 
it's not going to be a day, is it, where things just go wrong? It's just going to be slowly not. you get used to a less and less good quality of life. Or Yeah. No one wants to do a wreck from The Walking Dead where you just wake up after an indeterminate amount of time and the whole thing's just gone. No. I mean, the amount of effort that it took that guy just to even get through season one and you're like, why are you still going? Yeah. We're, you know, we're 11 seasons deep. Like, take a break, Andrew Lincoln. What's your five-year plan? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah. Is it to live? <laughs> because it's not a good one. It's just not working just out. You know, survive. Yeah, right. Why? It's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like just just end it, man. Um, it was funny you say about the facing things off worst case scenario. So I moved here three weeks before everything turned to shit, and there was Where that. Now I'm in Edinburgh now. Yeah, same. Yeah, it's a beautiful place to be stuck during the apocalypse, yeah. I've discovered. Um, and the, But my partner and I had those conversations so many times. Like, should we go back to the one country that doesn't have COVID, e.g. New Zealand? Or should we stay and will it be marginally better? And, and we've kind of just hoped that it will become marginally better. You know, is it like we're like, I guess it'll take 10 to 15 years, but maybe it'll be fun. It's It's a weird spot to be in. Yeah, well, I suppose with the what with a Kiwi passport, you're sweet, man. You're uh, you've you've got your. I'm, I'm guessing that's what you're what you're saying. You've got you've got a seriously good backup plan. You, you've got the yeah. backup plan of the billionaires. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but without the money and the resources to skip the quarantine time, and there's currently like a four month wait to get into the isolation centers. So, you know. Yeah. Also, we'll probably catch the fucking virus on the way home. That's the other thing too. Yeah. I mean, I do. I, I also agree. I mean, we're both in Edinburgh, so we've probably come to similar conclusions. It, it's a city. It's got city stuff going on. I mean, there's lots of unique things about this place. It's beautiful. Um, there's a lot less people. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm comparing this to London, by the way. Uh, it's got all of this stuff outside of the city, which is on your doorstep which mm. is just incredible nature. And it feels like I keep discovering new stuff. And then the list that I need to kind of explore just gets bigger and bigger. And that is exciting in itself. Uh, there's just a completely different attitude as well towards kind of like social interactions, life in general. Um, it's more about, it's more present. I think it's less about kind of like so determined with success to the point where it becomes the only thing that's going on and i love london don't get me wrong but i lived there for 13 years and it's it got to the time. point where i was like mate i don't know if i can take it anymore and then in lockdown being in a 500 square foot place because we moved for in the first lockdown um i was like i'm not doing that again we pay the same money for our place here and we've got two floors uh two massive bedrooms, a separate kitchen. I've got this room. It's not even listed on the bloody... I didn't even know we had this. Mm -hmm. I don't even list it because I don't consider it big enough to be anything. It's like, it's, this is like awesome. That's what this room is, by the way. I'm, I'm in like a, a weird box room off the lounge yeah. and I've put soundproofing all along this wall. That's it's, dope. It's brilliant. It works. It's worked out really well. Mate, so I feel like, yeah, we're in a similar spot in that. I... I'm biased, but I think you've made a great decision. 
<laughs> I mean, I think I have too. So that's that's comforting to have that affirmation. Why Edinburgh uh, as opposed to Dundee for a, a game developer for you? I mean, you know, Dundee has statues of lemmings. Like, did you factor that into your decision making process at all? There um, are lemmings in Dundee, Max. Yes, I I think. Uh... I'm going to just, I'm going to fly the ignorant flag here. Nice. Edinburgh is a city that I'd visited a number of times before. Um, and obviously Rockstar Games are here in, you know, in, in quite a big way. Although they're very, you know, they do their own thing. Hmm. It, Dundee's not far away. And, um, and I think that, you know, just by being in Scotland, you automatically open yourself up to the possibility of working with those people in a much more real way. The the developers I've spoken to who are, live in Dundee, you know, people who are part of like the Biome Collective and stuff like that, they are so in love with Dundee. They're so in love with Scotland. And I really love that passion. It's like, we love being here. Um, and for them, Edinburgh is just, you know, it's part of that kind of same... Well, I don't want to speak for them, but I think that be, just being in Scotland is enough to be like, yes, you're kind of part of the crew, if that makes mm. sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it's been really interesting talking to people and saying what makes Scotland such a great place to do games. And for so many people, it's been that rich heritage um, of, you know, DMA design and going way back to, you know, when the very early consoles were falling off the backs of lorries and mysteriously failing QA tests. You know, it's it's like you often i'm not sure what it's like for you but for me i kind of knew about the environment and i knew you know what i was moving up to obviously but i always sort of la as being like if you wanted to make it in games you had to go to la but when you start scratching the surface in scotland there's just so much going on i think that's the issue though mm-hmm. um and i think that's what brian's trying to solve you know with his uh his kind of map of game dev companies you you, you gotta remember that Game developers by default are, I think they're quite insular in that they are very focused on product building and those products happen to take, you know, in the majority of cases, years to build. They're huge undertakings. So there's lots of times when you can't talk about stuff or you want, you have this kind of like secrecy baked into you because of the development time. Mm. And I think that also because you know, there are concentrations of developers. When, when I first moved to London, for example, there weren't that many game developers there. Uh, and we were building kind of like flash games and we had like commercial clients and stuff like that, um, like Channel 4 and we worked with the Wellcome Trust and uh, we had a lot of US clients, like we were working with um, Warner Brothers, but they we kind of worked with them through their UK office in London. Um working with Crispin Porter and Bogowski at the time they had the additional, it was CPB, we called it. Um, and I think that in London and when they're commercially focused projects, they have much shorter time frame. you're talking months and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's some kind of quick commercial output. But I think in Scotland, they take it, you know, they take games a lot more seriously in that they're, they're trying to build proper games. And the, what I would call proper games is like big PC games, big console games. They got they they kind of hunker down and they build this stuff over over years. And I know they do that too, but like in some ways, I say Scotland is is console, Scotland is PC, and I would say London is mobile. 
and and that is a massive generalization because that is kind of not true but if you think about the mindset that comes with mobile it's a completely different one mm. if that makes sense yeah yeah completely it's it's i was talking to tag yesterday they're doing some stuff with um adult swim and rick and morty just to latch on to your point about having us clients and stuff and i think there's a lot of I was going to say transit. Is it transatlantic? I don't know. I don't care. There's a lot of sort of, um, you know, Scotland, US relationships, I think, that we don't necessarily hear about on perhaps the consumer side so much, you know, but I guess that's the nature of, of B2B business, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think that, again, in lockdown, the the blessing of, of, of the pandemic, which is there are very few, right but it's the chance to kind of look at your your situation and go is this what i want and the reason that i was drawn to london and stayed in london for so long was because i felt like things happened by chance meetings and that was true mm-hmm. like we got our job with sea hero quest and working with neuroscientists because we happened to be at a restaurant on a communal table with some people from sarchi's wow that's insane that, that is insane, right? Yeah. And um, and I know that a lot of companies in the UK were pitching for that work and we happened to get it because, I don't know, um, we, we, we obviously had the better kind of pitch or whatever. You told them your um, zombie story, didn't you? I, I kind of freaked them out with that zombie or post-apocalyptic <laughs> yeah. stuff. Uh, but I think the chance meetings and the, the, the opportunity for that has disappeared and also our business is now established because of projects like Sea Hero Quest, um, you know, we don't need to rely on those happenstance mm-hmm. things anymore. And I think that's fortunate. So then you're able to make decisions, right? You go, okay, lockdown, what are the negatives? There's loads. How can I shift this to be in our favor as a business? And Scotland made so much sense. So did you did you end up moving the whole business up here or do you have like a sort of satellite presence in London still? We still have a, a satellite presence in London. Um, but I think that's mainly because, you know, our infrastructure that we used to have was all based there. You know, like our accountants, our lawyers, you know, all of our kind of contacts, our friends, you know, everything's down there still. That hasn't come up. Um, but what has come up is this, I suppose, this mentality of like where we're going to put our stake in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, because we had an office in Dalston and we closed it in the first pandemic. It, sorry, the first lockdown. Um, and that was a that was a real, that was a moment of like, oh, we've had this space for so long. Why are we doing this? But then once it was done, it felt like a relief. Crazy. Cause I mean, there's all that outgoing of like rent and everything that you don't need to be paying in a situation where no one can actually use that space. And then it felt like the opportunity to go somewhere else was really possible. What do you think that, um, giving you, sorry, what do you think that moving here gives you that, that you didn't get in London, even if it's a mentality thing about like space and quiet and that kind of thing. I'm guessing it's not tax breaks. No one ever talks about tax breaks on this podcast. So if you want to be the first guy to be like, Scotland's great because tax breaks, but I'm pretty sure they don't exist for games. So no, they do. Well, we, well, video games tax relief in the UK, which is including England and everything are really good. Uh, 
and 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 you know we're part of like the trade industry bodies that we were before and i think we need to look at you know making additional associations with the scottish trade bodies here and brian mm. will help me out with that and i'm sure he's already suggested something um but yeah there are tax breaks and we'll talk about them because they are massively important actually um for us as a business you know being able to 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 have support from the government in terms of like helping with the cost of making games which are expensive very risky and require a lot of specialist talent is very forward thinking from their perspective and i know that um that has been championed by uh, people like joe twist at yuki who are our trade body um and we support them in whatever way we can to help continue that so we we've actually been uh, to parliament with yuki to to kind of you know not lobby as such but kind of sit down with mps and go do you know what um see here request is a really good example of how games can do something other than just play out your deepest darkest zombie fantasies right and uh they can do something that is for good and for change and it legitimizes the industry to the point where you know i for a long time think that the games industry has to look at the products that it makes as in a lot of cases like pieces of art mm-hmm. not in every case it's, and it's up to the people that make that stuff uh, but they're just as valuable as movies music and all these other industries and the film industry has been getting tax breaks forever you know absolutely yeah um and now we have our own and they're very good and i would love for them to stay around because they allow us to take more risks and when you take more risks um you know not everything pays off but you end up creating more interesting content i think um or or making high quality content or both and i think for us as a small business when you're working so close to uh your kind of like you know your cash flow and your forecast having that little bump of additional money that comes back from the money you've spent on your your game development even though there is administration involved of course there is uh it it works out so well like for example we've used it in a number of ways like we've improved the quality of the trailers we've put been putting out we've hired in people we wouldn't otherwise be able to afford um it just makes everything better mm-hmm. you know the quality um and that's really cool i feel like games is often in a, a strange place where people like you and i think about them we eat sleep all that stuff it's, it's around games right we could we get the industry but if you're sitting down with an mp you can say to them hey i make films and everyone sort of knows what that means right but if you sit down with someone and you go oh hey we're like the company that made halo i feel like people sort of go and i care why is there do you feel like the tide's turning or do you think there's still a bit of education around you know the important uh, the importance of the games industry um to scotland specifically and how and why it needs to be supported more um I it's think a big like question. Scotland Sorry. specifically is difficult for me to answer at this point in time. All I know is that I'm still finding my feet. We've been here not even six months yet. True. Uh, but what I've learned so far and the people that I have met so far, I feel like they're more accessible, they're more available, and in a lot of ways they're more open because they've really they've almost got that kind of Scandinavian attitude, and I think that's what um, would be really interesting 
even though the companies are kind of fairly spaced apart in terms of distance across Scotland, like sharing and, and kind of like making our ideas kind of or processes kind of open to everyone, I think will be really positive to kind of make the industry in Scotland really, really, really rich and good. Um, but in answer to the question about um, about kind of like games being seen and the tide turning and how they could kind of be perceived, there's so many games that have come out in the last 12 months. Uh, and I think things like Among Us mm-hmm. um, and, and the, and the pandemic, the, the lockdown has helped in a way because people are sitting down and enjoying games with their families where they, and, and board games too, where they might not necessarily have made time before because there's ample amounts of time on your own or with family members now. Almost uh, too much. Almost, almost <laughs> too much. Well, you know, you quickly learn uh, where to get your where to get your space, and if you don't, you may have already had a, a breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, games are getting taken more seriously in the in that they they're being seen as lots of different things. They're not just being seen as Halo's, Call of Duties, and Grand Theft Autos. Not to say that those aren't amazing games. Mm like among us and and kind of other card games online or things like overcooked they oh, i love very, overcooked yeah they're so much broader right in their appeal and the yeah. nintendo switch oh that console has done a lot for games that's that's actually something that's been really interesting for me looking at the switch i mean i've i've got one i love it I've, i go through this weird thing with my switch where I'll go, oh, no, I'll play on the PS4, it's fine. And then, oh, mine's out of reach, but I, I have it somewhere around here. And and then I pick up my Switch and I go, man, I love this console so much. Like, it's it's got so much charm to it. But but it's sold phenomenally throughout the pandemic. Like, as for an existing, you know, not necessarily overhyped unit, it's, yeah, people have really taken to it. I think they get it. They, they kind of blur that line between adulthood and childhood to the point where it doesn't matter. They're not building a game for like 18 to 34 year olds. They're building a game for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really like about Nintendo is they kind of like put h- humans at the core of what they're doing, you know? And and I, and I think that's quite Japanese because, you know, if you, I, I've only been to Tokyo once and I had the best time. Um, I went on my own because I was sort of like, yeah, I was in between, I'd literally just broken up with my girlfriend. We were meant to go together. Um, and I just decided I was still going to go. I was like, I'm going, it's good. a wicked trip of a lifetime. I'm not missing this. And actually I think it was such a good experience on my own because I saw all of that kind of, uh, all that kind of blurring of the lines of between like adulthood and childhood, you know, like it's okay to love something, um, as an adult that is very childlike. Mm-hmm. Um, and be really passionate about like plushies or Tamagotchi or like, that's fine. Like, that's just like baked into their culture. And I feel like we need more of that. And, and, and actually the switch gives you a dose of it. Right. And because it's personal, you got your own screen and games like animal crossing have been perfect to bring that out of people like mm-hmm. tending to like little crops and, or playing Stardew Valley and doing that, but in a, much more uh well they're both very relaxing games nothing's as relaxing like crushing data yeah 
Well, yeah, <laughs> the crushing debt of like constantly mortgaging. I mean, but that's the thing about Japan. It's like deeply capitalist, you mm. know, but they've just got this, I think, quite interesting balance and it comes through in their content. And the switch just like doesn't treat you like a kid. It doesn't treat you like an adult. It's just like, hey, how cool is this? And I really want games to be more of that. What do you think the Switch does for indies in terms of, I mean, both opening up a platform and an audience, but also giving games the space to be more of what we were just talking about? It's an interesting question. You know, like we've got a game coming out, Drive-By. It's Nintendo Switch and PC, Steam. I'll be mm-hmm. on other platforms uh, on PC as well. Uh, but the the interesting thing for us is, we wanted to go in cross-play first, you know, like we, we thought cross-play is such a great way to maximize what we can do as a studio of our size. Um, and we had to pick a platform to complement the Steam version. And the Switch is the one. And the reason it's the one is because it doesn't take over the living room. Mm. It's designed to be in your hand if you want it to be. And actually, like the addition of the, the light version only like hammers that home even further. You know, it's a it's basically cheap enough that you could get one each. Mm. Um, and when that kind of uh, like console exists, and a lot of people have them in their hands, or they're secondary consoles because they've got a PS4 or a PC as well. Um, a game like Drive By, like what we're doing, is you know only four players, online multiplayer focused. It means you could play with someone in your household and across PC and, and switch. And you could just add two other bots in and you could have a really fun time kind of shouting at each other. And I love that. Like to me, the, the, the Nintendo switch legitimizes indies or games companies because it makes people feel like if you've gone to the effort to get it to Nintendo quality, the mm. game is good. And it is a pain to get through lock check because they're very quality focused, but it's worth it, you know, because at the end of it, you're going to be sat there on the eShop um, and people will look at that and they'll go, okay, this is a serious game. Yeah. When was the last time you played a poor quality Nintendo game? That's such a great point. I mean, there is some mad stuff on the eShop. Don't get me there wrong. Is. I'm not saying everything on there is great quality. <laughs> Uh, but N- Nintendo have a very high quality bar. And if you're trying to get through Lotcheck, you at least know that games are going to run a certain way. Weirdly, it seems the big developers that drop the ball, you know, when they try and smash something on as a last minute port and it doesn't mm. even hit 30 frames a second. That's just like, why have you done this? It's it's almost like an afterthought for this sort of yeah. AAA um space one thing i'm curious about there's so many games man so many game studios you're talking that just now about getting on going on the eShop. but once you get on the eShop, how do people find you what's the you know i talked to um rivet games briefly about this and we talked about the sort of mobile version of seo and how you stand out on the app store but in terms of massive marketing campaigns and that sort of thing they're out of reach of most indie studios right so what's the kind of core of we've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds building this game two years of our lives now you know we can't just kind of throw it over the fence and hope the best happens right 
No, of course. But where there are high barrier to, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a high barrier to entry to getting onto consoles, but there is a barrier to entry, right? Mm. It's not as easy as getting something on Steam or getting something on Itch or getting something on the App Store. It's not. It's, mu- it's much more difficult than that. And I think when you have that, you also kind of restrict the noise. There is noise. You know, there's still lots of content coming out. Um, but the but the but the kind of like the chance for your game to do well on a platform where there is less noise is just greater by default. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, that I we we're not out yet, so I, I can only kind of like speculate, but I hope that complementing or compounding something which is on Switch with the PC version amplifies success. I think it does, and I think crossplay is a really good thing to kind of chime on about because not every game does it and it is quite a pain to actually do it. Um, but, the, but there is a sea of stuff and I don't necessarily think it's really an option for such a small business to kind of try and get attention on the app store. It's not, mm-hmm. I made that decision a long time ago because um, we used to develop mobile games primarily and we do um, mobile games for clients and things like that now. And you know, they're really great collaborations kind of building on the stuff we've done with Sea Hero Quest. So it's different. We're kind of in that kind of healthcare fintech space with, with our commercial stuff. So we're cutting the noise out by doing something different. But if we try to build, say, like a farming sim um, or a well, farming sims might not, might not be a good example because I still think there's a lot of room there. But let's say uh, a three in a row match game or a peggle mm-hmm. clone or something like that i just think there's no chance but i wouldn't build that kind of game anyway i don't know how to answer that question best really i suppose it's a bit of a sore subject for all developers right right but i, I feel like and and i don't know if this podcast you know series as a whole is ever really going to solve that but i think it's interesting to have us all kind of talking about you know if we want this industry to be more economically impactful for the country and and more people to know about it like how do we um shout about it and you know i think we're lucky that much brighter people than me e.g brian are focused on that kind of thing are you familiar with i think it's skeleton or skeleton key studios out of japan no what what have they made so they do they have a similar um model to you and they, they do a lot of background stuff so they've worked with Nintendo and Sony and that kind of thing. Um, but I chatted to them about a year ago and their whole thing is they build VR campaigns for like Mercedes and BMW. And it's that whole thing of, you know, you can put it on, you can explore the um, the car without having to ever get into it. And then on the side, they're starting to develop, you know, their own games and their own IP. So it's a really kind of clear crossover. They've, you know, they've gone, this is how we're going to make money. So we're going to focus 80% of the time on that and 20% of the time on, on our own stuff. For you pushing into drive-by and having, you know, a sort of similar background to them, how do you measure the success of your own IP when you're putting it out there? Well, I guess the first thing that's brilliant about, and, and, and like client work or collaborations, I call them collaborations because you know that's fair you're that's not an agency right no we're not an agency and we come in very early doors like when someone's got a kind of a seedling of an idea we'll come in and we'll help kind of turn it into something with a very like heavy game slant but it doesn't always turn into a game you know uh 
and that can sometimes mean that we just become consultants on those projects um but primarily i think that the the risk of launching your own ip is so huge right you have to have some kind of backing mm-hmm. you can't just build the game from like on I, you know people do build the game in their spare time but i think if you're going to you, you have to dedicate a lot of time to this. And you could say that in a way we're building the game in our spare time because we still have, you know, clients to look after and make sure they're happy. Um, but the, the risks are so different when you have that um, backbone of, 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 of client work because we're able to make decisions that benefit the IP. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, and people might argue that this, what I'm saying doesn't benefit the IP because I'm being short-sighted, you know, smaller piece of a bigger pie, all that stuff. But for us, it's also very much learning experience, right? If we're putting out our own IP, we need to learn what we're good and what we're bad at. And ultimately I don't want to be passing over everything to someone else and to, to, to discover, I always need somebody else to do the particular jobs that I've handed out. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we decided, well, we tried to get a publisher really early doors. It was a nightmare. It was taking up so much of my time. Um, and then we just thought, you know what? We don't need one because we can actually bankroll this whole thing ourselves. We'll just do it in like slow and steady. Um, we'll just make sure we cash flow really well and we, we're good at that. Um, and we, at that point, we make the kind of like risk a lot lower. If you're talking to an investor, they're already saying you're like X amount of hundreds of thousands of pounds in the hole and you've got to get back to zero as quick as possible. For us, I think that obviously we want to make a successful game. We don't want to lose money on it, but if we didn't make a penny, we would still be in business. Mm. And I think that's the difference. And I feel confident hiring people, knowing that working at glitches isn't just something that's going to disappear if the game doesn't do gangbusters because that's a huge risk and i think that's what's really tragic about the industry it's very title focused there's not that much studio support um, and where there is you've got deep claws or shareholders and there's there's a lot of complexities to it in some ways you could say that the video games tax relief has helped us stay away from that for as yeah. long as possible when i don't think that I don't think that publishers are evil. I don't think investors are evil. I don't think any of those people are evil, but I think they have a time and a place. And if you've got a successful business or a business that's showing traction, that's the time to get people involved. When you're working on an idea that's essentially untested, that's not the time to get people involved because you're going to give away too much. There's too much pressure to make that thing that you do successful. And ultimately I think kind of like, boils away and boils off all the good stuff about that creative process. Yeah, you have a, a, yeah, absolutely. It's a really similar thesis, thesis, ethos rather to my uh, business mentor. We talked a lot about investing and stuff when, you know, starting things like these and various other things. And it was that whole thing of like, if you can build a company or an idea that actually has legs, then you kind of minimize you know, your personal risk through all of the things that you just talked about. I guess the flip side of that, right, is if someone's starting out with an idea and they, you know, they they maybe don't have access to a whole lot of capital, 
what's the best way for them to go? Do you know, like, because we can't all, we probably should, but we can't all be Thomas was alone, right? No, absolutely not. And I wouldn't even put ourselves in that category. You know, I think that there are things that happen that are like lightning in the bottle. And to chase that is a, is a, is a, is an error. It's a mistake because you're, cha- you're chasing potentially a fantasy and those things can happen, but you shouldn't bank on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important not to, I think it's important, uh, to try and have a foundation of, of, of structure. And I, I want to make it super clear. Like when we started glitches, we started probably with like seven grand in the bank from like personal projects we had no investors it was me hugo um and another uh, founder who's since left and it was a struggle you know it wasn't very easy we didn't pay ourselves well mm. and all we did was like any work we could at the same time but from the start we did build our own products like chippy was the first game we built fish and chip shop simulator we did it in three months um, from a napkin idea to a product that was out on the store. And I think I felt like I never understood like bootstrapping. And that's what that is. You know, that is about kind of like using what little resources you have and just trying to turn it into something which is viable. And I think it takes years and it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Chippy a little bit because I love the, I mean, the fish and chip shop simulator seems like very uniquely UK, right? And, and yeah. New Zealand, a couple others. But I want to, I guess for this part, what really interests me is that creative process and that idea. Because you come up with it on the back of a napkin, you think, yep, this will be great. But there's so much to work through from going, we're going to have a fish and chip shop simulator to, you know, putting it on the app store and making it available to people. How much time do you put into an idea before you go, actually, this is this is not going to work? Obviously, um, it should be worked, but just for clarity. Do you know what? And this is not, I don't even know if this is good advice but we just all just gut feeling it. Does this feel good? Yes. Let's do it. Because I think at that, at that point in time, when you're trying to like work out whether something's good or not, you're potentially going to over engineer something. If you kind of put too much effort into the, the, the planning side, just give yourself a very strict timeline and a gut feeling. And, just, and, and, and I'm not saying do this, <laughs> <laughs> but this is how we did it. Uh, and, 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 and actually it did okay. You know, I think we did, uh, we, we recouped the money that we spent on it. Um, it's not been a gangbuster game in terms of sales, but it's always been something we've, we're super proud of. And when we look back at it and we play it every now and again, as you do, um, it feels amazing that we did it, you know, and I love that because it isn't very smart to do a chip, a, a very regional piece of content like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it felt good you know how do you work out pricing um this is an interesting conversation i think because we often we as consumers often will look at a triple a game we know it's going to be like 40 quid maybe a bit more now that the next gen consoles are starting to you know build on that but when you're an indie i mean they can be everything from like 50p to well i mean starting at free i guess through to 50p through to 10 quid or more like for drive-by what's your pricing strategy been 
Uh, just look at games that are similar in terms of quality and then price it at that. I think it's not... Nice and easy. I don't think it's an exact science, but, it, you know, for example, like, I think a good quality indie game you can charge £20 for, mm-hmm. you know, or, or 20 US. I think that's fine. I think the community would be like, that's okay. And then if you kind of later on you're in sales or discounts and it brings it down to like $15 or... $10 if you did a big sale, you know, that feels like very accessible price point. Mm-hmm. If you go above, I think, you know, 30 pounds or 30, I don't, I, the reason I say dollars as well, I feel like the market is over there slightly different. Um, but again, that's probably just a slight bit of naivety on my part, but just like looking at the market, looking at what people charge for stuff. Um, I think is the best way to do it. Hmm. Do you, you have to have confidence in your own product, right? I think some people yeah. go, my product's only worth 50p. You're never going to make your money back. Because <laughs> well, the platform takes 30%. <laughs> which, which, is a, which is a like a healthy amount to yeah. take, right? And the... the we, I think we, we like, you said this earlier, we like to think about games as, as art in the same way that we like to think about books and music and, and films, but without acknowledging the more commercial side of it. And when you're pricing and you're looking and you're saying, okay, you know, other similar games are say 10 US or 10 quid, but, but in the back of your mind as a business owner, are you going, we have to sell a thousand digital copies of this to, to break even like, is there something in there where you're going oh shit well we definitely have price forecast but i think um what we do is we do our best possible forecast and then we go this is the best worst absolute pittance scenarios and then we make plans off of that so we'll be like okay if the game does this we'll do this if the game does this we'll do that and that way you kind of like build some structure into how you're thinking about success and failure because it's very much important to think about failure as a very real possibility. Mm. And with games as a service now being a sort of increasing side of the market, are you looking at, you know, okay, drive by, we're going to release this and we'll release DLC, or is there a cutoff point for you and you say, okay, we're moving on to the next IP? I think that's difficult to um, say I mean, we have got a games as a service game. It runs on a on on a, on a GameSpark's backend. We've got lots and lots of functionality that will, will kind of help us build content and run events and stuff in the game as we kind of uh, after we launch it and, and and progress. There's content plans that range from, uh, and I, and I think we're kind of going down the sort of seasonal content route where we go like, here's a batch of new stuff you can unlock and some new content you can play with. Uh, that's our focus for drive-by. The reason is it just seems to be a really good way to kind of gate content, do your communication, marketing and stuff around that. I feel like DLC on a multiplayer game, unless it's just non-competitive kind of customization options, it's not a great route because you just you cut your play base up. Like let's say, for example, if you launched a map that only people with the DLC could play, you just cut your player base to like tiny amount of people who will actually get that. So, you know, we focused on uh, on content and letting everyone get that and rolling it out in sort of like seasonal releases. Mm. 
because it makes sense for us to kind of keep our play base all playing together you know especially when you bring bring cross play into the mix and nintendo switch and the lead time for content having to kind of like go through submission etc it just is is important to plan can we talk about that a little bit because i think i can't remember it was a year ago or two years ago there was a big thing about not being able to do cross play on fortnite on the playstation sony was kind of like yeah we're going to stay out of that sample and Mm -hmm. i think eventually they changed their mind but in terms of the logistics side of being a studio that develops content for crossplay and you know different i mean what i'm assuming here and obviously you'll correct me if i'm wrong but if you can reach nintendo quality for that lock check you're then in steam you know what i mean like it's a is there a fairly even sort of map there or is there a whole debacle where you have to like develop the steam side and then the nintendo side almost separately i think that i think that consumers have been duped into thinking that uh, consoles aren't computers. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. A PS4 is running fairly similar hardware. I mean, to the Xbox, very much like a PC. And the Switch is kind of like more veering onto the mobile side with the chips that it's got inside of it. But it has got a fan. The branding and the marketing is what makes us believe that they're all so different and distinct. And the fact that the shops are gated. Um. But you know. As a, as, a, as, a, as a company that produces consoles, that's really helpful because it means that they can have exclusives and they can drive hardware sales and all that stuff. Um, and they can also have their, have their kind of darling developers and they can buy studios and it all makes sense from that perspective. But it's about business. It's not about content or products in, in, in the, from the development side. From the development perspective, the game doesn't know unless you tell it that it's on any particular console. It's just like, have I got an have I got a network connection? Yes. Can I see these other things? Yes. Well, let's just connect to them then. It doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're it binary things care. though, right? That's I guess we, we don't tend from a consumer side, we don't tend to think about them as like binary pieces of software where you just say, you know, if this, then this. We, we no. like to think about them as, you know, things that we get tattoos of and, and stick on the walls of our man caves and it's like sort of cultural, um, I don't know, sign- signifiers or, or, or flag posts, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Well, I, I believe the hype as well, you know. I think that like consoles, they divide the rooms, you know, and, and I think that's about branding. That's mm. about marketing more than anything else. The games are part of it, but the games are just... I feel like games allow you to flex your loyalty during the console cycles, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, have you played Halo yet? Have you played um, God of War, the next God of War yet? And and, and you, that comes with, have you got a PlayStation? Have you got an Xbox? Um, and I think that for like a company like Nintendo, kind of getting their stuff on mobile, that was such a shareholder pressure thing, you know? Like mm-hmm. you need to make more money, it's like but, and 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 I can see the they're a pure. I, I think they're all purists in their own right. All the console holders, right? The platform holders, um, and Nintendo is a brilliant example of that because I felt like for them it was a real struggle 
for them to come to terms with the fact that their content would so easily work on mobile and the audience would just absolutely lap it up. But for them, it was like a weird pride thing that they didn't want to do it. (laughs) And even the business models they applied to those like games like Mario and uh, uh, like the Mario kind of like platformer one, the Mario Kart game, they were Mm. so different to what everyone else is doing. But I suppose that's because Apple or I think it was primarily Apple who probably had these chats um, and Nintendo could just talk behind closed doors. Right. And be like, how do we make this work? <laughs> We're getting all this pressure guys. <laughs> <laughs> we can't put Mario Kart on the phone. It's, it was, it was weird for me thinking about um, Mario Kart going on the phone. One thing just before I let you go, I'm keen to chat about is subscription services. Um, I think we like to talk a lot as gamers about like console wars, you know, PS versus Xbox and all that. I feel like Game Pass has kind of shown Microsoft's hand in an obviously very deliberate way, right? And that they want to be accessible to everyone, everywhere you, you can play any game that you want and sony's like yeah if you've got 600 quid to spend on a console come hang with us um but for you as a developer you know if you're on something like game pass or you're looking at a mass subscription service how does that work is that an appealing prospect it isn't it isn't i think the early doors of any kind of system like that is like there are big paychecks that we had for your content being part of what is essentially or what was an experiment when it was on the xbox one now it's very much a uh, business mm. and Microsoft have been so fast out the gate that I think everyone else is either pretending it's fine that they don't have the same level of service like nope traditional console wars is still on for this generation <laughs> that's gonna like you know if they don't have an answer to this it's gonna really be a problem um, but from a developer's perspective I hope that it leads us to a place where we are playing our games in a way that is just very, very easy. Um, I, I, I think lo- lowering the barrier to entry to content is really good for um, a lot of reasons, but there are some worrying things on the horizon. Ultimately, content is king, so the developers hopefully won't be like squashed and pushed down into like some kind of robotic factory line of content production, which is my worry. Um, you know, like are we building games off algorithms now? Like Netflix are kind of doing scripts scares the shit out of me, mm-hmm. but um, how much of that is already happening in a way? Like you go to a publisher and they're like, Oh, your game is crazy. Taxi meets Mario Kart. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much like derivative, derivative content in a way. But I think the subscription model works for certain games and not others. You know, if you've got a game that's sticky that people come back to you on a daily basis and is built kind of like a mobile games as a service model, I think you could be fine. But you could be fine outside of that subscription model in a way. Mm. Um, if you've got a game which is like a platformer, uh, that has a very small, let's say, let's take it inside, for example. Um, you know, that's, a, that's an experience that you play and it's amazing, but you wouldn't necessarily come back and again and again and again. Right. Do subscription models work for both pieces of content? And it depends on how you're paid. Right. Mm. 
mm-hmm. if you're paid in a licensing model and someone goes okay we want your stuff on here and we're kind of kind of treat it like it would be a box copy of a game and we're going to give you x amount per per download or we're going to predict you're going to have a hundred thousand players and we're going to give you a check for that amount it works if it works on playtime that's a problem it's a problem for certain types of games um it has a really really big chance of changing industry in a potentially negative way a potentially positive way the problem at the moment is that there are too many variables to the games industry (laughs) it's just too many things going on um it doesn't help to think about stadia um and their Mm. business model and amazon luna's potential kind of way of doing things but i'll be honest with you like i'm very excited about amazon luna or any streaming platform but amazon luna has i feel like got the right business model if it's what i think it's going to be um like from a development perspective being able to update your game and players not have to update their copy locally is a dream. Mm-hmm. Being able to do betas like that is a dream. Being able to turn off content on content, you know, is an absolute dream. Uh, being able to know exactly what hardware someone's running on, another dream, <laughs> because it's basically why consoles are so great and how they get so much performance out of stuff. Uh but then the, the thing that I really like is imagine, and this is speculative, I don't know if any of this is true, but Amazon are doing these subscription like to game studios, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that makes me believe that game studios are becoming more powerful, right? Because they're more in control of their own destiny. They're more in control of their community. Um, and I hope that their integration with Twitch, um, and, and I hope this extends to journalism too, would be a really interesting thing to see like the MTV channel of games, which I could subscribe to on Amazon Luna is curated by journalists, has its handful of streamers that stream on Twitch and it's dialing developers, which its audience care about. Mm-hmm. So that to me makes publishers need to either like change their tact or become channels of content. Um, But it also brings back all of the people that have been left out of this recent change in the way that games have been spoken about and publicized. And that's like the journalists, um, the, and and the content creators have been put so far ahead of them. And Mm. and I, and I would like that, that playing field to be leveled, like writing about games um, and doing like kind of games master-esque guides and magazines could all come back. That would be beautiful. If that was what was going on. Because if that is, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That'd yeah. be wicked for everyone. Yeah, that's the the dream future. The journalism thing is super interesting. Part of me feels like they did that to themselves. Um, but, you know, talking about the power that the games... That, that studios rather have versus what happened with the music industry 
is also super interesting. So I have a music podcast because I like the sound of my own voice. And I talk, you know, I talk to publicists and bands and stuff all the time. And people are always talking about like, oh, you know, Spotify, you get one US cent per play and like, you know, everything's fucked and, and people are going to starve to death, especially if we can't tour again. Whereas with game studios, Microsoft kind of turned up with um, Game Pass and was like, here's a big bag of cash you know, to have your game on Game Pass. And as you said, that's not necessarily going to be the case for everyone, but I think it's a very different business model. And it all—it almost feels like games are taken a bit more seriously than the music industry when it came to how those things were going to be negotiated. You know, it almost felt like games could go, you know what, fuck it, Microsoft, like, we don't care. We don't want to be involved. Put your studios on there, that's fine. Whereas with music, it was almost like they were dragged kicking and screaming into into spotify and just kind of took what they could get you know yeah totally like the streaming platforms turned up first there was lots of stuff going on on the ground with that right and i think the difference between that and and games is like the way you distribute games content via streaming services would be insanely expensive i imagine like the bill for google every month i mean they probably have they definitely have their own custom hardware i've read about it um that's just inaccessible. But putting like an MP3 on a server is a piece of piss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The problem is, how do you, but you could argue like putting the executable on a server is a piece of piss as well. So I guess my argument is kind of fairly thin. But I, I think that kind of games in, in general have got a lot more moving parts. Not to say that they're better content, but it's just a different ball game. And I suppose being a game development company you're very technical savvy because you have to be to build the games right mm. the rock star of rock stars of the games industry are big nerds <laughs> yeah <laughs> true 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 whereas the rock stars of the music industry are, are generally quite the opposite yeah they're actually deeply cool people probably <laughs> <laughs> whereas in games it's nerd first and everything else is second Max, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out. It's been a really good time. No worries. Cheers, man. Hopefully I haven't said anything to piss anyone off too much. I usually do. (laughs) We'll find out eventually, I'm sure. And there you have it. That was Sebastian Mackay with Maxwell Scott Slade of Glitchers. Um, If you like this episode and you'd like to hear more of Seb's interviews, you can find them uh, in this podcast feed. He's done an interview with Mark Williamson of Tag Games. He interviewed Colin McDonald of Rivet Games. Um, They are all in this podcast feed. If you'd like more from Seb himself, make sure and check out the Scottish Business Network podcast. We have some of our own interviews here too on the Scottish Games Network. We interviewed Claire Morwood who worked on the BAFTA-nominated game Before I Forget. We've also had chats with Elton and Cassiani of Team Junkfish, and there's loads of conversations up here. So if you want more of this, there's plenty in this podcast feed and over at scottishgames.net. If you've got any feedback for the podcast, if you have any questions, you can get in touch either via social media. Um, We're on Twitter at Scottish Games and you can tweet us directly there or you can send us an email. To do that, please go to the website scottishgames.net and go to the contact us page and you'll find an email submissions form that will go straight to Brian's inbox. But that's it for this week. We'll have another interview for you next week. Until then, have a good one. Bye bye.